Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Fastball hitting the left center field, base hit. In comes Mazzilli. In comes Wilson. Stopping at third is Tuffle. Three to two, Boston. I am absolutely humble and proud that my number will be up in the rafters for eternity, along with Casey, Gil, Tom, Mike, and Jerry. 60 years of New York Mets. I thank you all. I am truly overwhelmed. This is the pantheon of New York baseball elites that Keith Hernandez joins this afternoon. And so fans, please direct your attention to the Mets' retired numbers above the left field stands. 
It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, July the 10th, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and you can show an Apple podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan Sided Podcasting Network as well as RisingApple.com. Well, welcome on this Sunday morning, a two part podcasting day for all of you. This is an exciting day. You get to hear me in the morning pre-Mets game. You get to hear me in the evening post-Mets game before a big series this week against the Atlanta Braves. They're facing a Cy Young contender later this afternoon in Alcantara and the Marlins. So a lot of baseball to talk about, and we'll get to that. But this show, as we begin, I guess what, the appetizer or the opening act for the Talking Mets podcast weekly show uh, uh, on your you know program card we're going to be reacting to a great day at city field uh reacting to uh the retirement of a great Matt keith hernandez is number 17 and joining me i mean i wasn't just going to come to you and give you my opinion because let's face it you could have heard my thoughts on keith's number being retired and a great guest back in january if you go back to the january 16th show where you know essentially we talk about with Bob Klapish of the New York Star Ledger, someone who has covered the Mets for a long time, was there for you know, covering the Mets in the 80s, front row seat, uh, really cut his teeth in the industry with those 80s Mets. And, and we talked a lot about Keith, his Hall of Fame candidacy, and all that stuff back in January. But what better way to honor a great day at City Field yesterday than to get a former teammate, someone who saw the Mets before they were good in the early 80s, and someone who was there when they were good and was part of that championship team in 1986. So good friend of the program, Doug Sisk will be joining me. Doug is going to give his reaction to Keith's retirement uh, of number 17 and give us a perspective on the Mets before Keith walked into the clubhouse. And after I know you've heard a lot of Keith Hernandez, maybe I'm the last, uh, uh, the cherry on top of the weekend celebration, but I wanted to come to you and give you something. And I think Doug gives you a couple interesting tidbits because I had a chance to catch up with them earlier in the week. So this was recorded earlier in the week before the ceremony. But Doug, not only was he there before the Mets were good and for the championship year, but he also played in the American League East and got a chance to play against Don Mattingly. So that's the other part of the equation for this week. And Mets playing the Miami Marlins, Mattingly's their manager, Mattingly and Keith. And I wonder if the Mets planned it this way. Mattingly and Keith all connected in the New York baseball landscape in the 80s, the debate who's better. I mean, you could still have that debate now and, and have a lot of fun with it. So Doug Sisk, former Mets relief pitcher, joining me in just a little bit to react to Keith's number 17 and give us a perspective on a lot of different things tied to Keith. Now, I'm not going to go on very long here in the open because you're going to have a lot of podcasting. So like I said, go to the January 16th show, Bob Clappish. We talk a lot about Keith's Hall of Fame uh, candidacy and his resume. And I'll get, there's a few you know nuggets. We'll just, we'll set it up here. Yesterday, I will say this. I thought it was a tremendous day at City Field, big house, first opportunity to have that intense playoff type atmosphere, I think, at City Field. Yeah, they had the Memorial Day weekend crowd and things against the Phillies and whatnot, that Sunday night baseball crowd. But to me, yesterday was the first big, uh, 
you know, house, uh, you know, opportunity to hear the fans. And we're a little bit tense. I think the fans are starting to get tense again as we get deeper into the season. And that's the conversation we'll have at the, at the second half of the program. But what a fun day. It shows you what City Field can be at its best. And now that the Mets are 60 years old, and that's a real interesting concept that we forget. The Mets are, I mean, the Mets are almost eligible for Social Security. I mean, that's, you know, am I allowed to say that? Is that, that's an interesting thing. It's not a bad thing, but the Mets are around a long time. And I started watching the Mets in the mid-80s. Really, 87 was my first. I I saw a little bit of 86, but I was young. I was nine years old. 87 was the first year I really started getting into the the sport in a big way. And then there was 88 and everything and, and so on and so forth. So when the Mets, when I went to Old Timers Day in the late 80s, it was really 1969. That's the history of the Mets. And we've criticized the Mets a lot for their lack of embracing Mets history, specifically with Tom Seaver and the Seaver statue and the Jackie Robinson rotunda and what happened when City Field opened up. But think about it. Even if you go back 20 years, when you're in the midst of the Piazza, late 90s, turn of the century Mets, and then transitioning into the race and right Mets, you had a 69, you had 86, you had some nice players in between. But you didn't have the last 25, 30 years of Mets history at that point, which adds even more character and charm to the team, including Keith adding this broadcasting career, this Phil Rizzuto of the Mets to his resume. So part of me thought yesterday watching the ceremony and and everybody, you know, the John Harpers of the world and the Mike Vaqueros and all these guys who cover the Mets and who have always been very critical, including Bob Klappish, who, who we, we talked about this back in January, critical of how the team has embraced uh, not just the 80s Mets, where they almost wanted to distance themselves from that team immediately where, you know, right after, uh, but really doing a bad job of not creating a connection with the fans and history and what is good about the Mets. And part of that is across town you have a team that is the Baseball Hall of Fame in some ways in the New York Yankees, a team that's been around way longer than the Mets. But listen, you're now 60 years old. There's a chance to really have different eras of the Mets celebrated, not only with the Mets Hall of Fame and what they did by bringing back Johan Santana and celebrating the no-hitter, but starting to decide, is Keith the first of how do you address the 80 stars? Uh, When is David Wright going to get his day? Do you start to, and you're not going to have a big ceremony for everybody putting their numbers retired up there, but how do you start to make a bigger deal about the Mets Hall of Fame, their version of Monument Park, uh, so to speak? So I think now this was almost the, and the Seaver statue was a great ceremony, and it was a great opening day, way to, you know, crack the cellophane off the home schedule. But nothing beats getting a former player being honored, number retired, Big house, intense crowd, and a wonky. I, I couldn't believe when I read this morning because I didn't even realize this last night. This is the first time since Game Six of the 1986 World Series that the Mets win on a walk-off era. I mean, think about that—how crazy that really is. So, uh, so much good coming out of yesterday. I think from a team perspective, a Mets perspective, I'll put that into the, the back burner for the back half of the of the second podcast will come out later tonight where you know we'll talk about uh, where this team is and where it's going and, and really where now the chips are all into the center of the table. Real quick before we bring in Doug Sisk, 
is Keith, you know, deserving of this award? Well, look, he's a Hall of Famer, I think. And I think now that you have stats to back it up, advanced stats, if you, and I talked about this back in January, if you go from 1978 to 1988 on baseball reference, he has the highest wins above replacement in that 10 years, higher than Eddie Murray, who is a Hall of Famer, higher, significantly higher than Don Mattingly, or even somebody like Rod Carew, who played the position of first base. Remember, I'm sorting this by individuals during that period that played first base 90% or more of the games at, at that position. So it's not like I'm throwing in just anybody that put a first baseman's glove in there. Keith is by far and away, I and mean, he's right there with a Hall of Famer and Eddie Murray, and significantly higher than uh, Don Mattingly, who many believe, uh, is a Hall of Famer. Scott Boris sends out the packet. You know, every other position's leader on gold gloves is in the Hall of Fame. Every other player with 11 consecutive gold gloves is in the Hall of Fame. He's statistically the best first baseman of all time. I don't know how Baseball Reference does this. They even have a defensive war attached to him. Best of that era uh, when you really compare. So everything about Keith, and I think that's the next phase of this, is the Veterans Committee. And, and with his broadcasting career in full force where he's become this. And, and I think you'll hear some of the clips of what you know, Bob has talked about. He went from this really, you know, intense, sometimes cutthroat leader in the Mets clubhouse in the eighties, the the guy that came over here and, and brought this team for mediocrity and really said, all right, we're going to go this way. We're going to be this kind of team uh, to now this folksy cat loving you know, guy that has all these, you know, one-liners and, you know, size in the booth and and kind of is curmudgeonly and, and really with the whole, you know, travel uh, jokes is really think about back in the day when if you were watching Yankees games when it was Bill White and Phil Rizzuto, how they used to make jokes about Phil leaving the game early to get over the George Washington Bridge to beat the traffic. I mean, that's what Keith Hernandez kind of is to the Mets. So, Certainly a, a, a deserve award, uh, you know, an, an individual that's iconic. If he never gets into the uh, Cooperstown Hall of Fame, the big Hall of Fame, he's got his day here in New York. And it's amazing guy that grew up in the Cardinals organization, grew up in San Francisco on the West Coast, didn't want to be here, has become cemented as this all-time Met, not only on the field, but in the booth. And I think that's an important part of remembering why this is, to me, it's not just about Keith. I know everybody talks about Keith as a player, Keith as the guy who transformed the 80s Mets. That's a big part of it. But I think he deserves that number retired when you add in. I know this is not factored into a player's on-the-field reputation, but I think when you put in his broadcasting career, I think it's a no-brainer, and it should have been done a long time ago. And hopefully this is one of many And as we wrap up, after you hear from Doug Sisk, we'll get a little into what I think would be next for the New York Mets when it comes to retired numbers. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, former Mets pitcher Doug Sisk is going to talk to us about playing with Keith Hernandez, the Mets clubhouse before, the Mets clubhouse after, and whether he thinks Don Mattingly or Keith. He played against Don Mattingly in the AL East. He played with Keith in the National League. Who's better? You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The retirement of Keith Hernandez's number 17 is well-deserved. I often call him the Phil Rizzuto of the Mets because of his folksy nature in the SNY booth. Bob Klappish of the record joined me on the Talking Mets podcast to shed light on the player Hernandez was while he covered him in the 80s. You couldn't have had painted a more different picture. Uh, you know, I had a former Met teammate, 
you could probably guess who it is, but tell me that that is not the Keith Hernandez that you see on TV today or in the SNY booth. Keith is a different person. I mean, it, it, he's like a Zen master now. He's so calm. He's so gentle. And as I wrote in my column today, you know, he has the same temperament as his little cat, Haji. I mean, he used to be this ferocious guy, you know, this dark, brooding guy with, you know, the Tom Selleck mustache. And he ran that team. He ran the clubhouse. And Davey was smart enough not to encroach on that. Davey was in the manager's office. That domain was his. But in that room, it was Keith's room. And Davey knew not to, to try and rival that. Keith was in charge of everything that happened on the field. Certainly, he was like a, a an in-game pitching coach. He would go to the mound all the time telling pitchers what to throw. But more than that, he would police the room. He would police the attitude in the room. And uh, and he included the press. If he trusted you and you knew he wouldn't, you wouldn't burn him on the record, he told you exactly what he thought was going on. How many times that, you know, Daryl showed up, hung over to the, to on a particular day and didn't feel like playing and how, what BS that was uh, or who deserved to be benched or who was out too late the night before. I knew everything about that team. Because Keith trusted me. I mean, we had our fights. I mean, with a guy as volatile as Keith, eventually you'd run afoul of him and you'd have your wars with him. And believe me, we had we had our wars. For a long time, we didn't speak. But if you wanted to cover the Mets in the 80s, you had to be plugged into Keith Hernandez because that man was intense. He was powerful. He wielded that power, sometimes ruthlessly. And he knew everything. He was all-knowing. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. Joining me, friend of the program, we've had him on a few times. If you've been listening to me for, oh, wow, the last 15 years, this might be the third or fourth time he's been on. And what better person to talk about Keith Hernandez as we celebrate number 17's number being retired than Doug Sisk, former Mets reliever. Doug was there during the bad times. Doug was there during the good times. Doug, it's been a while. How you doing? You're out in the great Pacific Northwest. Welcome to the program, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Doug, I'm going to start with something really quick for you before we get to Keith. <laughs> I ran some numbers on baseball reference. I am a stat head member, it says. And did you know there's only one reliever in Mets history that pitched 95 plus percent of his games out of the bullpen that has more innings than you? And that's Johnny Franco. Did you know that? And I have those numbers over 400 innings. Uh, they bring you out there, you pitched every day, and uh, by today's standards, they might have a military tribunal putting them out there because they would say, hey, man, get him off the mound. He's pitching too much. So think about that. That's some interesting company. Johnny Franco, has, and he's got 300 more innings than you, but oh, yeah. he also pitched for the Mets. But think about it. You pitched for the Mets, what, five, six years? Johnny pitched for the Mets, different era, almost 15 years. But congratulations. You got yourself a new stat. You can go tell everybody at the dinner party. Oh, good grief. Everybody's got stats. There's so many stats out there now. It's crazy. I, I don't, you know, I really don't pay too much attention to that. I more or less, you know, winning games. And if I didn't have my name next to the W, it didn't make any difference just as long as we won. Absolutely. Now you're the Keith getting his number retired. You played with that team. You played mm-hmm. with that eighties team. What was your reaction? That's the first player from your group to have their number retired. And I don't know if everybody realizes what a big deal that is. Maybe been, we've been desensitized in today's era. What was your reaction when you heard Keith's number was being retired and going up to the rafters? No, you know, I, I, I thought this should have happened a long time ago. I don't keep much 
pay too much attention to what's going on, but you know, most definitely. And I, you know, and I know we talked about this a little bit, but I also think, you know, his name has cropped up a little bit more in the hall of fame type atmosphere. Uh, And of course the Mets, you know, being a, being a great defensive first baseman, great offensive, and then in the clubhouse and, and then just a freaking monster on the field as far as promoting and getting you going in the game, especially against the Cardinals. Absolutely. And uh, talk a little bit about the clubhouse prior to Keith. So you get up, you bring, you've come up in 82. I know Seaver's there in 83. Mm-hmm. You have Kingman there. Keith actually recently talked about it on a documentary. It was a much different clubhouse when Keith walked in, uh, you know, mid, mid 83. Talk about the clubhouse when you came in. Talk about how Keith coming in from St. Louis and how it changed so much. Because that, that's been a common theme as everybody who has covered Keith and obviously Keith himself, how different things change and how quickly they change when he came into the room. Yeah, back then, you know, we didn't have a captain. We didn't call him with the with the C on their shirt and all that stuff. And and when you had we had Dave Kingman obviously at first base and you know he was getting it from the fans a bit and and then Seaver, you know, he kind of, you know, still a little, um, a little bitter about the, the days back when uh, he was a Matt. And, but, you know, all in all, you know, when he came over, that to us, and I, as, as a younger player, that to me showed that the Mets were serious about really getting it going. And, and then all they really needed to do was add a couple more players. And, and, and you know, Hernandez played so well with nobody really protecting him you know, as far as hitting around him and Keith was such a tough out because I didn't want any part of him myself. Cause he hit the ball where it was pitched and you, you couldn't defense the guy, but yet he's on the field being one of the best defenders. So I, I think him being in the, in the clubhouse, it took him a little bit of time, I think uh, to find his way a little bit, because I, I think he was a little bit in shock about the trade, you know, he's going from the best team in baseball to, to a team that struggled with not a lot of fan support, kind of dismal there at that point. And, and then all of a sudden, man, things started happening. And I, I will say this too, if it wasn't for Rusty Staub helping and, and promoting to get him to stay, Rusty was a huge part of keeping Keith uh, interested in staying in New York and showing him the, you know, the ways of, of the city and the fun that he could have and, and all, and yet he's still there. So good for him. And that's a great point. Under a uh, uh, discussed point, uh, Rusty and Keith were very tight. Yep. Uh, obviously, Rusty has passed, but Rusty, not only uh, his work with New York City Fire uh, Fire Department, uh, he had a restaurant. For those who uh, don't remember, Rusty, you know, there was Mickey Mantles, and I, I've been to Mickey Mantles. It's no longer there, of course. But Rusty's was a hot spot to be in, right? You guys oh. like going to Rusty's. Those ribs, oh. what was it, the ribs you guys had? Still got my shirt. Yeah. Ah, you see, we should add you wear the shirt when you came yeah, on. Dog. That's what you unbelievable. And in fact, you know, you get a lot of the actors would go in there. Just a lot of uh, good, good stuff. And I, I think, you know, it's really funny. You know, you could look back at the days when they'd all go back to the city from the ballpark. You'd have Rusty and you'd have Keith, Dan, Danny Heap. They all had a, a van that they went on and they would get on that, that van and they would, they wouldn't take the, the the uh, subway they'd get in this van and go go back to the city so it was you know it was a it was a, a deal and danny probably knew keith as much as anybody because he's in that van with them all the time but you know we had we had a sprinkling of a lot of young young players on that team and and then you know when he came on this this guy's you know a little bit older and 
has been the MVP. He's been a part of a world championship team and, uh, you know, a total package as far as we're concerned. And, you know, unfortunately for him, you know, he had a little bit of stuff going on there in St. Louis, but when he got to New York, I think he, he decided, Hey, this, this is time to help out this club. And I think Frank Cashin really got in his ear a little bit as well. Um, and, I, it was a joy to to have a guy like that at first base uh, for you, me, especially against the Cardinals. Oh my God! Yeah, you know, you talk about Keith as a pitching coach, and that's what's talked. You know, that's what's been brought up a, a lot. Here you are on the mound. You just brought the Cardinals, and you know, talk about. So, how, how does a first base become a pitching coach? Think about it. Everybody knows the story about Jesse and him going to Jesse in the Astrodome, saying, "Don't throw yeah. another curveball." But <laughs> for you, you're a pitcher. You're a guy that you know walks some batters. You're a guy that you know, had your ups and your downs in New York and obviously coming out of the bullpen, you're, you're always in a situation where the game is on the line. Talk about Keith as a pitching coach for you and, and what he meant oh, to you he, and, how, and why was he, well, how can he, a first baseman be a pitching coach? Is, you know, he sees what's going on out there. He sees what's going on. In fact, you know, uh, as far as uh, the way that he was, I don't know if you guys remember seeing a lot on videos when he would stormed, you know, he, he would wait for the pitcher to release the baseball and we would have to see him out of the corner of our, our, our eye when he was busting to the third baseline, make the play to throw a guy out at third. I mean, you talk about a distraction. He'd let you know, Hey, I'm coming in, just throw the ball, come busting through, make the play and he'd throw to third and get a guy out at third. Or, you know, sometimes I'd go across a chest and, and he would, he would look at me, shake the head. Cause he knew I was going to throw in on somebody, which I rarely did because I didn't want him to get hair lipped at first base. And, <laughs> you know, as far as a pitching coach kind of guy, you know, he just come out there and he'd talk about your strengths and say, Hey, just throw strikes, man. Get this guy. He ain't going to hit. He's going to touch it. You know, we got a defense. Don't worry about it. And that saved, uh, you know, everybody else from coming out and having to make a big deal out of it, which was good. Or, you know, you just reinforce you when you're throwing strikes and when you're throwing the ball well, you know, he just was a very honest guy on the field, but very intense. Um, and I think a lot of the players had a huge, a lot of respect for him, uh, you know, as far as defensively knowing that they're going to throw that ball over first base. And he's going to catch it one way or another. Best defensive first baseman, in your opinion. I mean, some say ever mm-hmm. um, best defensive one was everybody. I mean, uh, you played a little bit against Mattingly, so you saw Mattingly yeah. too. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, actually talk about that a little bit. That's interesting because I just thought of that. You were in Baltimore later in your career. You mm-hmm. played the Yankees a lot. You saw Mattingly in his prime. You saw Keith in his prime. I mean, talk about that. That's that's an interesting little uh, no, I would say baseball in New York. I would say Hernandez by far, you know, a, a much more complete hitter. And defensively, uh, you know, he, he was he was uh, he'd come off the bag and make those plays. He anticipated something. He's, 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 he was smart. He was picking up the signs, knowing what we're throwing. You know, if you're if you're going to throw a breaking ball, he knows that there's a chance to left. He's going to pull it. So he's, you know, just like anybody else, but he was, he was just a lot smarter, I think, as a player. Plus that mustache. How could you not like that? That mustache um, at first base. But I, I think too, uh, what a lot of people don't recognize is, you know, is one playing to play in Seattle or, or Cleveland or anything like that, but to play in the city of New York uh, with the fans and, and, um, and all the distraction on and off the field and all of the stuff he went through and still to be able to go out there and just, knock it you know every day uh was was huge it's huge not a lot of people can do that uh doug six doug sisk former mets reliever joining me here we're talking a little bit about keith hernandez doug was keith's teammate uh for about six years and 
saw the Mets when they weren't so good, was there for the good times. And, uh, and like we just said, had a chance to play in the American League East and saw the other version of Keith across town, Don Manningly uh, as a member of the, the Yankees. Uh, was your perception, you mentioned earlier, he came over, he had some issues in St. Louis, Whitey, and he's honest about it. He was honest about it earlier this week. Whitey thought he was dogging it. Yeah. You know, we know the, the, the whole Pittsburgh cocaine trial. He admits it was a mistake. Was your perception, this guy's coming in to the clubhouse. He's supposed to be, you know, a bit of a savior. Were you surprised at who he was when you got to finally play with him? Because was the perception different playing across the field, seeing him oh. in St. Louis? Oh, it's just, it's just you know, getting a chance to play with him instead of against him is one, one of the big deals right there. You could ask Jesse that too. Jesse, Jesse gave up a couple uh, long balls off of him that he kind of wished Keith had a Mets uniform on at that time. But no, him, him coming over, again, I was a young player at that point, and I'm just still trying to find my way. It was a whirlpool of a whirlwind of playing the game of baseball. And, uh, and then when this guy steps in there, I've already seen Tom Seaver, which was a dynamic thing. And now you got this man. Um, and it was like, holy cow, I've seen some of the best players in the game of baseball now. And it helped me to know that I was a part of the team with these guys. It really, and then to go out and have a beer with these guys on top of it. Holy cow. That's the ultimate. That's interesting that you still talked about that. Cause Keith has brought that up a number of times over his broadcasting career. Mm-hmm. You know, he started broadcasting at SNY 2006 and I've probably heard him say in the last 15, 16 years, at least a dozen times, uh, the teams that go out, you know, yep. we talk about all the crazy stuff you guys did and all that, but put that aside, going out. And is it overstated that you guys would go out and although you're having a good time and you're getting away from your job, because it is your job talking about the game, talking about your at bats, talking about mm-hmm. what's going on. Was that actually as important as Keith has talked about? Cause he felt it was, and it oh. helped you guys not only grow together as a team, but uh, helped you become better players. And, that's not in the analytics world of today. That's not something anybody wants to even, you know, bring up. No, there were, there were no coaches around. There was nobody. It was just us talking. And, you know, if you're BSing somebody, you can't BS your own players. And it's just so funny the way that everybody went about their business and talking about baseball. I mean, there's joking and all, but no, he's absolutely right. We talked about baseball all the time on the plane. I'm sure we had fun and all, but it was all about the game of baseball and, and, um, you know, learning how to uh, make a mistake and get away with it. Uh, learning to know when you're playing well and you're on the right track and, you know, uh, making sure that you stay on it. Um, cause you know, you're, you're going to have a rough time at it and you're, and it's just a matter of how you come back out of all those discussions were going on all the time. Nowadays, these guys have their own computers, their own phones. They don't have to sit there and talk to anybody. They can sit there in their own little world and sit there and stare at themselves and all their stats and this and that. I'm not trying to be weird, but, but no, they're, that we weren't, we were a team of people that, that got along very, very well. And, um, and everybody uh, pretty much knew what everybody else was thinking in most cases. Absolutely. Uh, here's another interesting thing I, I thought about as I was looking at, you know, your uh, career. You played with Keith, but you played with other uh, great leaders from teams. Cal Ripken, you played yeah. with him. Uh, Terry Pendleton, you know, who I have talked about, you know, when your perception of Terry when you went yeah. to Atlanta briefly. Um, you know, was, it, was their styles different? I'm just curious. What was their leadership style? Because they're all they all leaders of those teams that you were on. You know, I think I think every every one of them was a little bit different, but they were all, 
you know, once you become a coach in baseball and you still want to play the game of baseball, that's a tough fence to straddle. When you're a great, great player and you can bend the ear of the manager every once in a while and, and, and help out a little bit with some players and this and that and everything, I think that's what's important. That's what Keith did a lot of that. Gary did. Ray Knight did a lot, too. Uh, the guy that I really uh, stuck up for me more uh, as a player, and that was Eddie Murray. Eddie Murray, to me, was just not a loved by the media, by the way. Oh, not he loved was by the media. Not at all. But in that clubhouse, there wasn't a thing that he wouldn't do for you, you know, to protect you. And I can recall uh, playing in St. Louis um, during the playoff. Man, it was it was an eighty five or eighty seven. I don't know when it might have been. And Hernandez is saying, "Hey, we, you know, you guys are going out." To, you know, have some drinks and have some food after the game. He says, you know, I got a good friend of mine that owns a restaurant. I want you guys all going there because he's going to protect you. You don't need to be out and about being called pond scum, getting in a brawl. And before you know it, you know, you know where it goes. Right. And, you know, there was that kind of stuff going on with him as well. But yeah, a lot of the leaders, Terry Pendleton, another good, good guy, good, good guy in the clubhouse as well. And um, yeah, but I got to tell you, Ray Knight was a good one too. Ray was Ray was in there all the time uh, talking to Davey, you know, Keith was as well, um, which was helpful for us. It was like another coach on the team. Absolutely. It's interesting. And and when you talk about Keith and everyone kind of puts Gary Carter next to him as a leader, but Uh you mentioned Ray, you know, you mentioned that Gary was way different. You know, Keith, you know, looking back now, Keith was, it's almost like, uh, you know, Batman and Robin, you know, Keith was more intense, maybe a little brooding, uh-huh. you know, a little darker, maybe Gary was, you know, obviously smiling all the time and uh-huh. a different type of leader. I mean, what could you share about those two guys, the differences in the dynamic that they bounced off of each other? Yeah, I, I think at that point, Gary, Gary, I know was, was thinking maybe he could have been captain as well in the club. And I, I think they both should have been co-captains, whatever the, the whatever the C is on the uniform. But I got to tell you that they're totally, totally different, but with the same results. I had my club, my locker next to Gary for three or four years there. It was rough, man. When, when he had a great game, all the reporters are right there. I can't even get to my locker. Then they started setting up rooms for these guys. Um, but Gary, a lot more mild-mannered, very, you know, very um, smiley, happy to see the press. You know him. Yep. There wasn't too many things he didn't turn down when he wanted to talk on the microphone. Keith, more to the point. He, 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 I'm not saying he didn't like him, but he knew that he had to talk to him. But he, he got what he wanted to say, and he got it out. And, uh, you know, that, that was just the same results, just a different type of person. With analytics, there's all these stats and data about positioning and what have you. Um, you had that with Keith. You didn't need the graph. You didn't need, you know, you see how they have the cards now, Doug? Yeah. Look and see. Yeah. Keith was your card. Gary yeah. was your card. Think, was oh, that yeah. true? Like, you didn't have to worry about where your second baseman was. And you certainly didn't have a third baseman playing out in the outfield as a rover no, no. when you played. Uh, but that was another thing Keith talked about. Like, he kind of knew. Mm-hmm. where people needed to go. And that helped you as a ground ball specialist. That probably helped you a lot. Yeah. In fact, you know, it's so funny. You, you look at uh, your strengths are a fastball down uh, to sink and you're trying to throw a guy he likes the ball down and in. So you're throwing the ball away on him, you know, uh, and he's got to make, you know, hope that he's going to pull the ball to shortstop first base side. But now he knew he could tell by the way you're warming up. He could tell by the way things were going and, you know, uh, and then the batter that was coming up. I mean, there was never any scouting reports really, as far as 
uh, what a players, what, what, what the players were doing. It was about what they're doing differently. Hernandez knew what these guys were doing. All of our players knew, you know, our third baseman shortstop and they all knew what, the, what they were, what they were capable of doing. And I, I got to tell you, you know, Howard playing a third there, you know, he dropped down a little bit and throw a little sidearm. Ooh, boy. Hernandez dug out a lot of first glove balls. Santana, first. Santana, oh, not a great arm. You no. know, things like that. And no. Rafi would just throw the ball and Keith wasn't even on the bag yet. Right. Just to get rid of it. Um, so, you know, he had a lot of different angles of balls coming at him from all over the in- infield. Um, me, I'm getting ground balls all over the place. It's just a matter of, are they going to go through the hole, you know, uh, you know, and then putting pressure on the defense a lot. I did because of getting guys on base. So there was a lot of captain crap going on at first base, a lot of defense uh, changes. There was a lot of stuff going on out there. Couple of things before I let you go. Uh, yeah. You know, I had Bob Clapish on in January when they announced that Keith and you remember Bob covered the yep. team. Mm-hmm. Um, it was funny. He even talked about a time when he was on the program how uh, Davey forgot to kick him out of the clubhouse. You guys were having a team meeting and Bob's still yeah, sitting yeah. there, you know, and yeah. everything like that. But what you see now, the Keith Hernandez. I don't know how much of Ke- Gary Keith yeah. and Ron you you catch games because you're out in Seattle, but he's like the. Honestly, he's like the Phil Rizzuto of the Mets. They joke about him complaining about going out to the Hamptons and the traffic and, you know, the game's going too long and his cat. And Bob is like, hey, I covered this guy. This was not the guy I covered. This was an intense guy. This is a guy that used the media as a tool to send messages to the club. Uh, He he could be biting when when he felt you were, you know, not on his side or you weren't on, you know, you weren't doing your part, whether it be a part of the media or a part of the team is that, you know, looking at it now, I mean, it's almost like a different guy. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how, how much you catch of yeah. him, but is that an accurate portrayal of someone who played with him? I think exactly right. Um, I was a little surprised uh, on some of the, uh, the footage I've seen because he's so mild mannered. And I think there's one of them, a 30, 30, 30 for 30. He's got his cat. I never realized he had a cat. So um, I think that uh, a lot of it is, uh, you know, when he was playing, I mean, he was so intense, you know, getting at it. And, and a lot of people, uh, you know, I think he had a lot, I think during his career, he kept thinking he had a lot more to prove. He was a late round draft pick um, originally. I think he's like in the 37th round. And for people that don't know that that's, that's down there, you know, for a guy like his caliber of baseball, that's, that's, uh, that's down there. And um, yeah, he, he seems very mild mannered now. Uh, to me, uh, and I, I got something that kind of got to me. The other, uh, this was a while back when Rusty had passed away, when Keith had done his his uh, speech about him, and Keith was just beside himself. And I'm just going, wow, you know, this came from the the gut. I've never seen this before. So you know, Absolutely. he's 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 different now. We all grow up, and we all look back at when we played and go, you know, there's a tape that I listened to one time of a game in Atlanta. We got in a huge brawl. In fact, it was the Fourth of July game years ago when we went what 18 innings or whatever and uh one of the one of the radio radio guys for atlanta uh interviewed me on on the uh uh video recorder and uh, when i got traded to atlanta he brought it to me and he goes doug i got something i want you to listen to i never was couldn't be able to use it on the radio you were cussing so much and i listened to it oh my god was that me it's the same with Hernandez, man. He was absolutely into it. And I was telling somebody the other day about him, you know, he would come to the back of the plane, come see us back there, the scum bunch. One time we had a big, huge blaster radio back there blasting. 
And uh, one of the players had gotten uh, the B-52s tape. And all of a sudden, this tape turned on, and he came from nowhere. Apparently, he loved that music. And he, it was Rock Lobster. I'll never forget it. And he was sitting there doing this chicken dance. And, and as quick as he came in, he was, he was gone. He had gone and he was done. The song was over and that was it. So yeah, a lot different now than, than, uh, than he was back then as we all are. And if anybody doesn't know the scum bunches, Danny Heat, Doug Sis, Jesse Orozco, and who am I missing? Who's the fourth? And and I, I gotta tell you, you know, back then too, we, we did a lot of baseball talk, man. That's all we did. I mean, we sure we drink, drink some beers and played cards and everything. And, I'd rather I'd rather see guys being that way, can, you know, tied together more than just kind of, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Mailing Last it. question. Last yeah. question. I know I got to let you run. Um, is Keith the Hall of Famer? I'm talking about Mets Hall, oh, yeah. of, Fame, Hall of Famer. Are you in the because it's close. Yeah. You know, you got guys like Will Clark in that conversation, you know, guys you played with in that era that are close in numbers. Maybe Keith, and he's talked about it, broke down a little bit when he hurt his kneecap and his hamstring. Yeah. That was after you left. Mattingly's not in the Hall of Fame. His numbers are really good. Is yeah. Keith, you you put all those guys now as first baseman. You know, Eddie Murray's in the Hall of Fame. You played with uh-huh. him. You mentioned him. Is is Keith on that class of Eddie Murray? Is he a Hall of Famer, the Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame? I think so. I think with uh, his uh, uh, as an all-round player, defensively and offensively, I mean, the only thing, I mean, if, if they're judging just purely on field, um, as far as a player, I think so, no doubt about it. I think uh, that obviously there's there's some other things there that they're paying attention to a little bit more. And uh, if, if they were to uh, pay, you know, allow that to to happen, then I think that other people would be in the hall of fame as well. So I don't know if that, you know where I'm going with this. I think it opened the yeah. floodgates a little bit on some players sure. that maybe they don't want uh, to be there, but Hernandez definitely, as far as I'm concerned is, is definitely a hall of famer just because I played against him or with him, but, but because of what I saw on the field and, and obviously look at how sincere he is on the radio and TV now. Sure. It's really uh, good. And, and I'm so glad that they're allowing him. I, I, I did not know this. They weren't allowing him on the field down there for batting practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the ownership was not too excited about that because uh, they didn't want his influence for whatever reason. And I'm going, oh my God, this is crazy. You know, you got a, one of the best hitters in baseball that can't come down and watch batting practice because they're afraid he's going to say something that, you know, right. coaching's different too now. I'm seeing, you know, like those wristbands and can right. you imagine all that crap? We would have Gary Carter with a wristband or looking at the <laughs> dugout to Mel Stottlemyre. Here, well, here, here's the thing though. I can't let you go without bringing this up. I almost yeah. made a mistake here. Yeah. You're going to yeah. be at Old Timers Day. And yes. I expect now, so anyone who's going to Old Timers Day, it's late August. I don't know the exact date. Yeah. But I expect to see you snap off one of those <laughs> one slider for us. One slider. Throw for a strike. Don't hurt anybody. Don't, you know, Cespedes, I want to see you against the Cespedes. I want to see you against the Daniel Murphy. You know, maybe Keith will take a nap bat against you. Who knows? I might so, plunk somebody. I might, you might know. plunk somebody. That's the other rule. You know, I had a great pitching coach back before Mel, uh, and that was uh, Bill Mumbo Cat. And the Hawk always says, hey, how many pitches does it take to strike somebody out? And go three. How many does it take to walk somebody? Four. Uh, so how many does it take just to hit somebody? One. He said the same thing about it as a hitter. He goes, hey, how many does it take to hit a home run? Do they remember all their home runs? Do they remember all their hits? Do they remember when they got hit? Oh, yeah, they remember when they got hit. Right. And I, I did hit a few. But, yeah. you know, that's that's the way it is. Nowadays, I think you you uh, 
you, you get in a little get a little bit of trouble for it. So that's for yeah. sure. Well, Doug, you're always a good guy to talk to. I love catching up with you. Thank you for doing this. Anytime. Um, we'll talk again. I expect to see you at Old Timers Day. Yep. We'll up. Be well, my friend, and take care. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be on. All right. Doug Congratulations, Sisk. Congratulations, Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. That's Doug Sisk, former Mets pitcher, talking about Keith Hernandez. Love it. All right. Let's take a quick break. Wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We're back with more right after this. Do you ever wonder if Keith Hernandez is worthy of Hall of Fame consideration? Listen to Bob Clappish of the record describe the player Keith Hernandez was while he covered him during the 1980s. I mean, he's one of those players who's greater than the sum of his parts, whose, whose numbers don't really tell a story about how he inspired the rest of the team. Just, uh, he's one of those guys who just made the people around him better, sort of like this John Wayne character. Uh, because after the seventh inning, it was really hard to get him out. They used to say the same thing about Yogi Bear. You couldn't get him out when it really mattered. He somehow found another gear. And Keith had this focus and this determination, this fierce determination to not get beat by an opposing pitch. He took that personally. He hated striking out. Hated it. It was always a great sort of surprise to him that he walked more often than he struck out until 1989 when he started his decline. But until then, man, I mean, he had an incredible eye. His, his, walk, his walk to plate appearance ratio was, was incredible. And he just had that late-inning thing about him that made the, mess, the rest of the Mets really, really good. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. Keith Hernandez will be the batter. Keith's had a good night. Cycles count in extra innings, don't they? Sure do. Line drive, base hit. And Keith Hernandez is a bad motor scooter. Keith Hernandez has a single, double, triple home run, hitting for the cycle, I believe, for the first time in his career. Early this year, Gary Carter had a chance to hit for the cycle, hit a ball up the alley in left center field of Wrigley Field and was thrown out at second base, or he would have done it. And the last Met to hit for a cycle was Mike Phillips back in 1976. of podcast one of two it's amazing how quickly we get to an hour on the talking Mets podcast so great stuff you heard from Doug Sisk you heard some clips from the Bob Clappish conversation back in January check that out January 16th talking Mets podcast if you haven't subscribed on Apple or any of the other podcasting services well this is my cheesy little ad to you well go do it go back to January and go listen just because it's January doesn't mean that we can still have fresh content here on certain podcasts of the show um, real quick as we wrap up. So I gave you my thoughts on the day, you know, and I think that'll tie more into the team. I think it was one of the first playoff type atmospheres that we've had at City Field this year. Weather's finally into the the heart of summer and a four o'clock start on a Saturday. There was a, a feel, a, a big time game feel, even though they were playing against a, a, a second division club, but a, a tough club or a plucky club, I should say. In the Miami Marlins. What's next for the Mets? I know Joel Sherman talked about this over at the New York Post. What's next for the Mets in terms of retiring numbers? And I know David Wright is an obvious one. And everybody's talking about Doc and Daryl and and what have you. But I think now that Keith Hernandez has been retired, before you get to Doc and Daryl, and you really have to address Doc Daryl, the one name I noticed that nobody's talking about, I know he's passed 
It's been about, what, 10 years, maybe more, since Gary Carter passed too too soon. And I know that he was with the organization in the minor leagues, and maybe because of the way he handled his desire to manage the club, maybe that hurt him a little bit in the eyes of some in the organization. That's a long time ago, and a lot of those individuals are gone, including the ownership. But I think it's important, if you've honored Keith, you have to address the other big star veteran import that came over in Gary Carter because Gary managed the pitching staff. Gary had an MVP-type season in 85. As good as Keith was in 84, it was Gary's arrival that made them feel that they were finally a championship club. And I know it's not the same having potentially his family accept the honor of number eight, but I think of anything... And I'm sure if Keith has, if you got Keith in a room, and he might even talk about it on the broadcast at some point, because I'm sure it'll be brought up if it hasn't already. I'm sure Keith would say, if he's up there, Gary's got to be up there. And and then you have the two young stars, Doc and Daryl, who have other controversial aspects of their tenure, but also, despite the way their tenures ended and why they ended, were the young, up-and-coming superstars. So between the duality of the two big-time veterans who knew how to win, and the talented young up-and-comers in Doc and Daryl, that would be the right way to bookend and honor an era of Mets history and finally really put it in the in the closet. Because how many more times are you going to honor the 86 team? You have to go, move forward. I think the way to honor the 86 team is not the team, but the individuals that were on that team. So to me, before you do right, before you look at anybody else, or before you do any other kind of Hall of Fame celebration I know about, you know, I was there well over 10 years ago when they put Doc and Daryl and and Frank Cashin and Davey, and they had that Hall of Fame uh, situation when, when Frank was still around, and I had a chance to sit with Frank Cashin and talk to him, remember that. Um, so much there uh, that 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 was you know talked about in terms of what's next and, and how could the Mets pr- uh, go forward in honoring these players. Well, now you have the template. You have Keith. And I don't think you just stop there. I think if you just stop with Keith, you don't do service to the others. And Keith even talked about it. Maybe he was the igniter and he was the guy that first pointed the way and said, we're going to be a championship club. But the guys who came after, the young players that he stayed because of, he's been honest about that. And then the acquisition of Gary Carter, I think, also needs to be honored before you get into David Wright, before you get into anything else about Mets history. We have to – ownership, Steve Cohen has to – Finally put a cap on all these endless 86, 80s Mets celebrations and give Gary Carter his day, give Doc and Daryl their day. And I'm not saying do it all in the next year and a half, two years. I think you got to space this out because you want to be able to have ceremonies that, you know, it's a marketing thing too, that that aren't just all jammed up in one summer or clumsily shoved in because you want to catch up. But that's the order I would do. I would do Carter next. I would address Doc and Daryl after that. And then you get to David Wright. There's plenty of time for David Wright to get his day. Plenty of time for David Wright to get his day. And, and maybe somewhere in between you do him. But I think you got to put a cap on the 80s. And I think next is Carter, in my opinion, or should be considered Gary Carter uh, and Doc and Daryl. And it'll be interesting to see how the Mets handle that. And I'll be interested to hear your thoughts. Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Remember, no G. So that's it. That's what I got. Part one of a doubleheader of Talking Mets podcast. Well, you know, it's early here on a Sunday morning. I have a special guest that I'm hoping to have to talk about the Braves series coming up. We'll recap where the Mets are going into the big series in Atlanta coming up this week. 
charging a week away from the all-star break which is a much needed all-star break i think for the team and i think even for the fan base i think they were a little tense yesterday at the ballpark they might need a few days off to get away from what will be an interesting second half between the trade deadline and the push to the postseason mets firmly in the middle of contention firmly in the middle of being part of something big and uh you know the fun's only beginning here all right you can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. We'll be back with another Talking Mets Podcast later today. Till then, take care, everybody. game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.